at This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be listening at WAGP.net as we broadcast around the world through the internet or locally at 88.7 FM. If you are new for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge in your life or a theological conundrum you're working through or whatever it might be. If we can be of help, all you need to do, again, locally, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525 1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, at WAGP.net. All right, with that said, uh, Walter, it's good to be here this morning. Let's go ahead and get started. All right, good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Sean out of Indiana, and he writes, I am wondering how God works. Well, uh, sometimes not according to our ways. It's a pretty broad question, Sean. I, I, I sense maybe you have something else in mind, but I'm really not sure since this was dictated uh, at TBL at WAGP.net. But I would say this to you. Um, a passage that immediately comes to mind is found in Isaiah in the 55th chapter And there the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I would say right off that God's ways are not always as we would perceive them to be. Um, Man's ways are very different. We're fallen. We're depraved. Uh, We can be regenerated by the Spirit of God so that our thinking is brought in sync with the Lord's. But ultimately, when you think about how God works, he always works according to his will. And what we have recorded concerning the will of God is found in Scripture. In fact, he'll say, Isaiah, in the next verse, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not uh, return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so God's will is found in God's word, and God's will never contradicts his word. And so if you want to understand how God is going to work as it relates to, oh, his broad work in the world, his uh, sovereign work, you know, amongst the nations, or whether it's God's specific will for your life, then you want to be in the scripture. Um, I I, kind of sense that maybe this is like, how do I find God's will for my life kind of question. And I recently preached a sermon on that. If you go to search the scriptures, and I did it out of Acts 1, and uh, it's also posted at communitybiblechurch.us. And I talk about the various aspects of God's will 
in when it comes to uh, God's uh, specific will, beyond his general will. There are some things that we are all to do as believers, uh, but then there is God's specific tailored will as it relates to your life. And Sean, who's uh, emailing us here from Indiana, I think that would be really helpful to you. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on the Bible line. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Cynthia from Beaufort, South Carolina, and she would like to know, what are the promises of God? That's really a good question, and it's one that's asked in different ways. So let me just talk about some general principles when it comes to uh, discerning the promises of God. First and foremost, you should never ignore the context of the promise. Uh, there are many, many promises, thousands that are found in Scripture, but some that do not apply to you or to me, but to a specific person. You wouldn't want to take God's command to Abraham to go on top of Mount Moriah and then to sacrifice his only son with a promise that the child would be raised up and say, well, maybe this is something I should do with my son. Of course not. So context is everything. But people take verses out of context all the time, like in Exodus 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And I hear people quote that on occasion. But then three chapters later in Exodus, God gives specific commands as to not their being still, but how they conquer their enemies. So one, consider the context. Secondly, consider the condition. There are some promises in the Bible that are unconditional. God's going to pull off no matter what. God is going to raise the bodies of both believers and unbelievers no matter what. Um, It's going to happen. Uh, That's an unconditional promise. God made an unconditional promise to Israel that as long as the stars and the moon and the sun is up in the sky above. That's how long he's committed to the people of Israel, that he's not done or forsaken Israel. But then there are many conditional promises, even to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Uh, God says, if you obey me, here's some of the blessings you can expect. If you disobey me, here's some of the consequences you can expect. I turned here to the book of James chapter 1, And he's uh, speaking here about, uh, well, let me read it, starting in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect. It's teleos. It means mature, incomplete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to expect nothing that he will receive, not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So there's some conditions even here. Now, contextually, is reminding us when we're in the midst of a trial, that's the time to ask for wisdom. Now, we often quote, uh, James 1, five. if you lack wisdom, ask of God. There's some decision you need to make in your life. and and But contextually, he's dealing with a problem that you have, a trial that you're going through. 
God, what do you want to teach me through this? If indeed you work all things together for good to make me, as Romans 8, 29 teaches, more like the Lord Jesus, what are you wanting to accomplish? Because that, again, is talking about how we can be mature, teleos, complete. It's translated perfect, uh, lacking in nothing. There's a maturity process, but we want to find out what God is intending for us that we don't miss the lesson. Uh, With that said, there's conditions. You have to ask God if you lack wisdom. If you don't pray, you're not going to find wisdom. And secondly, the second condition is you ask in faith. So there are many conditional promises. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now that's a promise Jesus gave, but it's a conditional promise. We need to be in fellowship with him and his word needs to be richly indwelling in our heart. And on that condition, then we can ask the Lord for, for wisdom. So one, don't ignore the context. Don't ignore the, the ifs, the conditions, so to speak. And certainly don't use a promise manipulatively. Uh, sometimes folks will take the prayer promise where two or three are gathered in my name and, you know, whatever you ask will be done for you. And well, you know, you can manipulate the circumstances and find two people who agree with your heresy or your bad behavior and think that it's the will of God. Um, and so it's important that you don't manipulate the promises of God. And then I would just say uh, we shouldn't limit a promise to our own understanding. Um, even when we rightly recognize a promise that's intended for us, something that we can hold on to and apply, we shouldn't take our understanding and impose it on the promise. And again, sometimes people do this. Um, Jeremiah 29, 11 is often quoted. I often hear it at high school graduations. You know, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord, you know, for your welfare and so forth. And, and it's a great promise, but contextually it's given to the people of Israel And Jeremiah is reminding them, forget the false prophets who say everything's fine, Nebuchadnezzar's not coming, or you can escape his judgment by fleeing to Egypt. He's actually telling them, submit to my servant. God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. Why? Because not that he's a believer, but he's a tool in the hand of a holy God to accomplish his purpose and forget those who will say, this is just a short throw. Uh, They prophesy to you wrongly. You're going to be there for 70 years, but I know the plans I have for you. You're not going to be there forever. And God is going to bring the people of Israel back. Now that's not to say that you couldn't take Jeremiah 29 and extend it to the Christian today. Uh, and that there are other promises that might regulate this. Commit your way to the Lord, and he'll direct your steps, that God's a good God, and his plans for us are for our good, and so forth. And so, uh, But it's important that you don't take a promise and limit it to your own understanding. And too, when you come sometimes to some passages of Scripture, especially, say, the Proverbs, you need to ask, is this a promise or is this a principle? There's a lot of principles in Proverbs uh, that aren't necessarily a, a downright promise. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. That's, that's a promise. Uh, don't 
reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Why? Because the whom the Lord loves, he reproves. And that's restated in the book of uh, Hebrews, that, that that's a promise. But then there are other statements that are made that there are general principle, and we need to look at them in that context. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Well, is the righteous always delivered from trouble? No. But again, Solomon is exhorting people to godly living, and most of the trouble that we experience in this life, we bring on ourselves simply through disobedience. Uh, so it's important that, again, don't ignore the context, don't overlook the condition, don't manipulate it, don't impose your own understanding on it out of the context. Is it a promise? Is it a principle? So I hope that it's a pretty broad question, but it's an important question. I hope that helps. Let's go to the next caller. I think they're patiently waiting. All right, Pastor Carl. I believe we have James live on line one. Good morning, James. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Good morning. Um, There's scriptures that speak of our days being numbered, our times are within God, and it's appointed unto man once to die. And my question is in regard to a person engaging in activities which are not sinful but are viewed as risky. Uh, can being involved in a risky activity have any effect on our appointed time? Or uh, if God already knew the future and he knew you would be doing this activity um, before he determined your time, ultimately, would it have any bearing on your appointed time? Oh, yeah, that's, that is a great, great question. Um, and so from Psalm 139, it says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And so can we, in essence, influence or impact the number of our days? So on the one hand, God, because he's omniscient and he's all-knowing, he has determined the days for us. He knows precisely the day of our birth and the day of our death. But can we impact those days? We'll certainly take risky behavior. I have a friend who he used to fly gyrocopters, and I used to describe it like a a lawn chair with a propeller above it because that's what it looked like. And it was super risky, he even crashed once. And finally he, he realized, you know, especially when he lost one of his close friends and he was like an expert, but the close friend that he lost in a gyro accident was also an expert, like a national winner like he was. And, and he finally said, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. And I think he made a commitment to his wife that he would stop flying those things. Uh, so there can be risky behavior that's just stupid. On the other hand, there is behavior that isn't necessarily stupid, but is related to moral decisions that we've made. Think about King Hezekiah. God's going to discipline him for his disobedience. He's broken over it. He falls on his face before the Lord. He is truly repentant. And what does God say? I'll extend your days another 15 years. All right, so they are, again, God in his sovereignty knew the day he was going to be born, the day he was going to die. Yet, on the other hand, um, we are players in the whole process of what God's going to do. We're not robotic. It's not all fixed so that we have no part. There are some people, like in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, 
And there Paul is talking about believers who went to the Lord's table, but in a uh, less than respectable manner. And so he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And Paul contextually defines an unworthy manner of participating in the elements with known, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life. And so he said, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. He doesn't want you not to participate. He wants you to participate. He is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Just don't do it in an unworthy fashion. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment. Now, the old English says, uh, some of the translations say condemnation or damnation. But that had a slightly different nuance. It could have a dual nuance, kind of like the word trial and temptation. Um, James, in the book of one, when you encounter various temptations, and uh, as it reads in the King James, and then it says a few verses later, no one is ever tempted by God. Or in the King James, it says, God tempted Abraham. Wait a minute, God doesn't tempt anyone. But they are assuming that people are smart enough in the 17th century to figure out contextually what's in view, because actually in Greek, it's the same word in both instances, but context determines it. And so in later English editions, we would distinguish between a trial and a temptation, so to speak, and we translate it differently. They just assumed you could figure it out from the the context, and you ought to be able to. But I'm saying that that word damnation had a dual nuance. And so people have taken 1 Corinthians 11, 29 as a warning to lost people at the Lord's Supper, though the Lord's Supper is for saved people, but they've used it as a warning to lost people why they shouldn't participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, listen, um, the warning is not to lost people, it's to save people. And because saved people partook of the elements in an unhealthy manner. They didn't judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. The word sleep here is metaphorical for death. A number of you have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, getting back to your question, James, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so, again, there is some play that we have in determining the days of our life. God knows it in advance, but sometimes because of risky behavior, sinful behavior, and other things, we cut short the days that God would have preferred for us to have had. He has them written in his book because he knows what we're going to do, just like God knows who's going to receive Christ, but that doesn't change your free will. Fair question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. Our next question comes in as a live dictation, Pastor Carl. It's from Allie out of California. She writes, she says that she heard Pastor Carl once say that a good church is worth driving a long distance. She and her military family were once members at Community Bible Church, and now they live in California. They found a good Bible-believing church about 25 minutes away, and they have two little children and cannot serve or be a part of different events. There is also another bigger church much closer, uh, but it's not as advanced. Which one should they attend? Well, it's a good question. And so I would say first and foremost, 
25 minutes is not all that dramatic. You lived in this region at one time. And again, your frustration, we hear it all the time. We just had two women who drove last Sunday from New Jersey to Community Bible Church. They found us somehow on the web. They began live streaming. Both came to meet the pastor. They wanted to come to meet the pastor because neither of them had assurance of their salvation. You talk about hungry people. You talk about people that God had been preparing. They come to meet the pastor. They both receive Christ, and now they've gone back to New Jersey. And, of course, one of the things I think that grabbed their attention was there was all these churches in New Jersey that are grossly compromised, that are politically correct, that are afraid to address the moral issues of our day. We'll do our best to try to help them to find a good church. And I will tell people very often, sometimes find the, the best church that you can, and if need be, vitamin supplement on the internet. You know, you might be use Community Bible Church or some other sound Bible teacher. But 25 minutes, that's, that, that's seemingly nothing. You know, I mean, people who live on Fripp Island drive 50 minutes to come here. People who live in Bluffton drive 30 minutes. Uh, so 25 minutes is nothing, and especially in a place like California where everything's spread out. Though I will say, obviously, in California, there are traffic issues that might prevent you from a midweek service and things like that. So you might consider in those contexts, if there is a larger church maybe that offers things for your children during the week that are not compromised in terms of what they're going to teach your children, you might take advantage of those kinds of things during the week. But again, there's opportunities too when the church is gathered to serve And so there might be some capacity in which you can serve when the church is gathered. And then there are common things that we do when the church is scattered throughout the week. Uh, There are some non-negotiables that every Christian is to do. They're to be involved in winning people to Jesus, sharing their faith, doing everything they can to grow. Um, We have people who drive an hour to come to church. Uh, There's a guy who's an usher at the front door every Sunday, and Reginald and and Reginald comes from Walterboro every week, and he passes dozens and dozens of churches along the way. Uh, why? Because it's so frustrating. He's been to so many where they either don't believe the Bible or don't teach the Bible or, you know, and, and so he, he has a family. He's raising his children. He has a slice of time to do it. Um, I will sometimes say if you live within a 50-mile radius and you need a healthy church, consider coming to Community Bible Church. Is it ideal? No, but this is the day that we live in. We are told in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that at the end of time, there would be gross apostasy. And as I mentioned on Sunday's message from Acts 28, apostasy is planted in churches slowly and subtly. And so I'm thinking of churches that 10, 15 years ago were similar to Community Bible Church, but today are totally out in left field. They have apostatized. The word apostasia means to fall away. That didn't happen overnight. Some leadership were obviously attracted to models like Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Church, or Rick Warren, uh, his church in California. They produced large numbers very quickly, and they bit the carrot. And they ended up doing things like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, 
where the centrality of teaching the Bible expositionally was lost because they said that wouldn't attract the unchurch. Listen, you do not you do not attract the unchurch at the expense of what is to happen to those who are believers. So if you're going to some church and it's a lame pastor, and I'm thinking of a church that I was once an elder in, in Texas, in Rockwall, Texas, it's one of the top 10 largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. And now they have, you know, Beth Moore occasionally on Sunday morning. And the pastor has been doing a series on movies like Barbie and Toy Story and just stupid stuff. And what is he basically saying? That the scriptures are not sufficient. That if we want to stay big and become bigger, we need to do these creative things. And what Spurgeon said back in the 1800s, there would come a day when uh, there would be clowns who would entertain the goats instead of shepherds who would feed the sheep. That's a paraphrase, but that's what happens. And so slowly, subtly, people, either because they're new, they might even be one in one of these churches that's compromised because they have the gospel, but they lack discernment because they're not being grounded in sound doctrine. The word sound is a word, a Greek word that means healthy. In other words, it's healthy to the individual to hear good sound teaching. And it's important to the individual that he hear that sound teaching or he's not going to be a healthy Christian. There's just like healthy food you need to eat. You might not like your broccoli and all you want is, um, you know, a sugar stick to suck on And that's what some churches are offering. And so given enough time, unbelievers begin to enter into the fellowship. I had a man who joined on Sunday, and he actually was at another church in town where they baptized him. He comes to meet the pastor, so he thought he was a Christian. All the while, you know, he's living uh, the life of a drunkard and other issues that are unfolding. So he comes to meet the pastor, fills out the form. He's 50% sure he'd go to heaven. Well, obviously, that pastor baptized an unbeliever. He baptized an unbeliever. And he didn't have the discernment to ask some basic questions to see if this person even understood what the plan of salvation was. And that's what will happen in these churches. That's what has happened. And before long, then the majority rules. Last week, we had a question that came in here at the Bible line, and it was through a couple where... They seemingly were solid theologically, and he was even given an opportunity to preach on occasion, and and people would be very upset with him because they've become LGBTQIA, gay-affirming church. Well, look, gay people ought to be welcome in any church in terms of you want to win them to Jesus. We don't hate gay people any more than we hate the self-righteous religious man or the drunk or the prostitute or the drug addict. But to become a member, to be considered a believer— you must believe on the Lord Jesus, and that results in a changed life, because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So 25 minutes, it's nothing. Um, I would think about it, and I'd think hard, um, and I, I would probably encourage you in that direction, because I think you, you've had a taste of what a healthy church should be. And again, you've got a slice of time to raise your children. And if a church is solid and you drive 25 minutes, then that pastor is spending anywhere from 10 to 30 hours in preparation for that message. And that's going to impact the lives of your children, where you bring them to some lukewarm church where their ears are being tickled, or 
they give enough, you know, a point here and there, and they baptize a verse in it, but nothing that's going to really ground your children, then you're then totally responsible to do that all by yourself. Now, you're responsible anyway before the Lord, but one of the reasons he raises up shepherds is to feed the flock so that your ministry to your children can be an overflow of your own spiritual growth. You don't want to miss that. It's too important, especially in this day of um, moral compromise like Lot's day and Noah's day and theological departure from the faith. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, it's 843-525-1859. We'll go back to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Alberto from Savannah. Good morning, Alberto. You're live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead, yeah, Alberto. Good morning. Good morning. I got a question. Uh, how do you how do you handle if you're if you like Christian people are the only ones being persecuted, not the other religious people? But even the Christians join sometimes with the with the, with the unreligious people persecuting the Christians. So how can you treat those Christians as believers or not? Because like they said, they're Catholic and they say they're this and that, but at the same time they're not being persecuted, but you're persecuted. So why is that? Yeah, so it's a it's a fair question. So let me let me bring you to the passage of scripture where, you know, in the upper room discourse in the 15th chapter, the Lord describes his relationship to uh that we have to him in the first 11 verses and then he describes the relationship that we have to fellow believers beginning in verse 12 through 17 and then he describes our relationship to an unbelieving world. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you, and if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Um, so again, he's, he's giving some clear teaching that if you love and follow the Lord Jesus, you'll be persecuted. Well, what's the function of the church? The Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew chapter 5, that in many ways we mimic both salt and light. Let me just turn there for a moment and read it to you because there are many people who are listening every week that are brand new to the Bible. He says in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. And one of the chief functions of salt was not just simply to savor the taste of a food, but its principal usage in the first century was as a preservative. So you would, you know, catch fish and you'd salt it. You could keep it for a long time. You'd salt your meat. It preserved it because they didn't have refrigeration. And in that respect, uh, the Christian basically is like a preservative. He preserves righteousness. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it may be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown underfoot and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so salt preserves righteousness, light dispels darkness. And so when a culture is strongly Christian, it impacts not just the body of Christ, but it impacts an unbelieving world. And that's one of the reasons America has been such a pleasant place to live in until recently. 
because things are beginning to come unhinged across the nation. We have lawlessness that's happening in city. There's growing rape. There's growing stealing, theft, murder. Crime is just running off the charts. You know, California is suffering like few states, and you see, again, the heightened liberalism and the heightened rejection of God. And with that, you know, they have lawlessness on a level like never before, and you've got all these corporations and companies saying, we're out of here. Um, you know, you have this liberal mindset, even like I was listening today coming in, and New York is going to be fitting a bill over the course of the next two and a half years for $12 billion, the city of New York. Now, they advertise themselves as a sanctuary city. So, okay, we'll send you. And now, you know, they're, they're, they're usurping soccer fields and football fields and places in the little green space they have in New York for the kids to play. And why? Because they're ignoring biblical principles that a nation is to have borders. And a nation without borders ceases to be a nation. So what's happening is, is the Christian worldview is becoming more and more a minority view. You may be a Roman Catholic. There was a a woman last week, a Roman Catholic, who was dismissed from her teaching capacity because she refused to use the preferred pronouns of a student. Why? Because she had a conscience. She recognized that there was a difference between male and female. There's a bunch of Muslims in California who are being viewed as terrorists, not because they have any um, terrorist-like behavior, but because they think it's wrong for the school to be peddling homosexuality and transgenderism to their children. Why? Because they have a conscience. You could call that persecution. It's It's persecution in that sense in that they're upholding righteous standards. So there is fallout on an unbelieving world where they can be opposed. Uh, because of um, their fact that they still have a conscience or they have been salted and their conscience has been heightened uh, heightened by the Christian worldview. There's coming a day, however, where that will not be the case because a line will be drawn so hard in the sand that you have to choose. It's called the time of the Great Tribulation period. And anyone who doesn't follow Christ follows Antichrist. There's no in-between. That in-between region that we still have to some degree in our nation, but is fast being shrunk, uh, that won't be there. And so if you're a Christian, it will be heads cut off. Uh, There'll be gross persecution. In fact, Jesus said it will be so intense that unless those days had been cut short, no human flesh would have even survived the tribulation period. So I hope that answers your question. Good good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, it's 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Stephanie out of Portland, Oregon. She writes, if Billy Graham is right and the majority of believers stay baby Christians, how can we know when we encounter a person who has been saved for a long time and stayed a baby or someone who is a new convert or someone who is intellectually or or who does intellectually know the gospel but has not become a believer? All right. So um, let's deal with the last one for someone who intellectually understands what the gospel is but has not become a believer. And again, you can't assume because someone says, I'm a Christian, I've invited Jesus into my heart, I've been baptized, because those kinds of statements are often equated with being born again. 
And again, you're only born again once. A, a gentleman I met recently um, said, well, I was saved when I was 12. And I said, well, help me a little bit. When I asked you the question, how sure you were that you'd go to heaven, you said 65% on a scale of zero to 100. And when I asked you what you needed to do, do to be 100, you didn't have an answer. And so I was reminding him, whatever happened at 12 was not conversion. How do I know that? Because again, just as there's only one physical birth in your life, there's only one spiritual birth. Is there a prerequisite for a spiritual birth? Among other things, there's a certain body of knowledge that you must have. You must know that you're morally bankrupt. You must know that there's absolutely zero that you can do to contribute to your salvation. A woman came uh, to uh, meet the pastor on Sunday night, and she was under the impression that she was uh, in the Marine Corps, and she she's now a professional nurse, but she was in the Marine Corps overseas, and and some chaplain baptized her, and she was convinced that she became a believer through her baptism. And so what people do is they associate inactivity with conversion. And so you don't have to know a whole lot, but you do have to know that, A, you're morally bankrupt, and that there's not anything that you can do to contribute to your salvation. So even a group that says, well, baptism is part of the plan of salvation, you'll hear them say things like repent, believe, confess, be baptized, like Compassion Church, which used to be Savannah Christian. They teach baptismal regeneration. That's a different gospel. That's not the plan of salvation. That's no different than the Corinthian, uh, the Galatian era, where someone added to the plan of salvation a work. In that day, it was just one work, circumcision, and they said you had to come through the vestibule of becoming Jewish before you could be saved. No, Paul says that invalidates the cross, that it's grace alone through faith alone. You can't add a single work. Either God saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he does not save you at all. So one, you want to be discerning. Let's just say for the sake of argument, someone knew clearly the plan of salvation, but there's no life change. Then you want to put some, I think, helpful seeds in their mind. I met such a man just recently in my neighborhood, and there was a fishing pier, and he came out to the public pier. He said, you know, there's not many piers left where you can fish in the state that are public in nature. And so they drove all the way from North South Carolina. I said, the northern part of South Carolina? He said, no, North South Carolina. Oh, there's a town called North, yes. And someone has since told me there was a whole dialogue on the internet, some some uh, play off of the two words. I haven't seen it. But anyway, um, and he said to me, well, no, I'm saved. My daddy was a preacher, and and he was talking about his dad's problems, and he now has dementia, but he can still quote scripture and all these things, and oh, I'm saved. And, you know, once you're saved, you're saved forever. And I said, well, your friend down there just told me that you're living with his mother. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we've, we've been checking up together for three years. And I said, well, look, I'm not your judge. God is, but I can... I can tell you what the scripture might say to you. And I quoted to him a couple passages like, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
but such were some of you. So God can save you. But if this is the direction of your life, you're living in adultery, you're living in porneia, sexual immorality. This has been the direction of your life. I know it's wrong. I said, well, it's not just wrong. It may be evidence that you've never been converted. Paul, likewise, in Galatians 5, and I, I quoted this to him, that the deeds of the sinful nature are evident, and they are immorality, impurity, sensuality. I said, just the first three describe your life, and then he'll go on to say that those who practice such things, those who live this way, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Can a person commit adultery who's saved? Yes. That's why he says, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. But he is reminding us that if this is what characterizes your life, if this is what drives your life, then you have proof positive that you've never really met the Lord. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I said, so again, I said, I'm not your judge, but the New Testament would give very little assurance to you that you've ever met the Lord, that you've been born again. The one who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And so again, we're not talking about perfection, but we are speaking of a new direction. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. His old life has passed away and everything else has become new. So that would be maybe some discernment on your part. Maybe they're not involved in sexual immorality. Let's say they know the plan of salvation and uh, they just have no love for the people of God. Well, in 1 John 5, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. These things meaning what things? He is writing to people who might potentially have a false assurance of salvation because of the teachers who'd come into the church. So these things have written to you so that you can genuinely, absolutely know for certain that you've got the real item. Well, among those things that he mentions, by this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. If you're born into a family, assuming it's relatively healthy, you'll love your brothers and sisters. There is a built-in love that God gives. It's family love. Um, Well, if you're born into the family of God, there's a built-in love. Now, I know a person can get out of fellowship, but again, not only is it a mark of conversion, it can also be a mark of someone who's out of fellowship with the Lord. So one of the things I would do is just listen to the kinds of questions that they would ask you. I had a gentleman in my class and not in my class, in my office one day, and I said, you know, every question you've asked me in this appointment is answered in the discovery class. You need to go to the discovery class. Well, I was under the impression that's for new Christians. Well, it is for new Christians, but it's for more than just new Christians. It's for people who've never grown, and if Dr. Graham was correct, where he said before he had died, 90 to 95% of those who have been regenerated, born again, they've never matured. And so um, the discovery class, it's online at searchthescriptures.org under basic discipleship. In 23 of the 45 weeks are up there. I'm getting ready beginning September the 20th uh, to do some more weeks, the next lesson where uh, you can do it online, but it's so much better to go if you're, say, a member of Community Bible Church 
but I'm redoing the material that I first published in the 1980s. I never publicly published it, but I've been using. It's my own work. Um, and I make it available to churches as long as they don't change it or remove the copyrights. Uh, but with that said, um, someone could work through that. And so he goes to the discovery class here at Community Bible Church. And six months later, he says, I just want to thank you. I said, for what? He said, for encouraging me to go to the discovery class. He said, I grew more in the last six months in the discovery class than I had in the prior 22 years. So this guy comes as a saved person for 22 years as the chairman of the deacons of his church. He wasn't a fringer, but from the questions he was asking me, it was evident that he was a baby in Christ. And so those would be maybe some, this question comes from where, uh, Oregon? Uh, uh, Stephanie from yeah, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, so Stephanie, I, I, I know you can't come to the discovery class on Sunday morning, but you might go to search the scriptures under the search bar, type in basic discipleship and start working through um, six of the lessons are up there. There's a total of 20 lessons. So I took, say, the three-page handout that we had been using for years on prayer, and now I wrote out everything that I would say if I were teaching the class because I taught it for years, and now it's 33 pages long. But anyone can listen to the messages, fill in the blanks, and someone can teach it in a Bible study in their church or in other venues. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes in as anonymous, Pastor Carl. She writes, when she and her husband got married, they both professed to be Christians. But years have gone by, and alcohol and bad language have been present. This listener has tried her best, but she is wondering, is this a reason to get separated or divorced? Certainly not to get divorced. There might be times for a planned separation. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. And so, uh, again, you, you, you both profess to be Christian, but years have gone by and alcohol and bad language have been present. I'm assuming from what you're saying that this is just true in your husband's life and not yours, or have you been having a beer or a glass of wine with him? And then he goes further. So the problem, the genesis, a major problem, even if someone weren't saved, is alcohol. Alcohol as it's packaged today is forbidden. Um, it's considered strong drink. And I'm not talking about the distilled liquors that come almost a thousand years after the Bible is written. I'm talking about naturally fermented wine and beer. It's strong drink, and you can give it to one exception, and that's to a dying, despairing man like we'd give, say, morphine to someone who's in pain and on their deathbed as an act of mercy. Uh, strong drink could be a blessing in biblical times for the simple reason that you would mix it with water, and so you didn't have to constantly boil your water you mixed it with, say, wine, and the mixture ratio was typically five to one is brought out in the Mishnah and the Didash. The Didash is a first century, um, second century, maybe it's dated about 125, most would put it, uh, pastoral manual, so that when um, wine, which was freshly squeezed grape juice called oinos, when it was fermented, it was still called wine. The only difference is it could make you drunk. And so when there was not fresh grape juice available, uh, unlike the preservatives and refrigeration that we have today, uh, then you mixed it in a five to one ratio. So alcohol is a disaster. 
It's always a disaster. But this is what I would say to you. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So on the one hand, he says, to the rest, I say, not the Lord, meaning this is not a subject that Jesus addressed during his ministry on earth, but I'm going to tell you as his apostle what he would say. Uh, And in the first instance, which directly relates to you, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave. But if she does leave, why does he make uh, an allowance for leaving? Because sometimes your life is in danger. People say, well, he's abusive. Well, tell me how he's abusive. Well, he yells at me all the time, and he uses bad language. Well, is that the kind of abuse that you might uh, leave on? Maybe not. You know, there is actually a place in First Peter 3 to suffer unjustly. Oh, but we don't want to talk about that today. In First Peter 3, having just described the, the worst injustice in all of the universe, which God used to purchase our salvation, given and expressed towards one who never said anything evil, never had a bad word in his mouth, never committed a single sin, they slew him up on a cross, and of course, in the providences of God, he purchased our salvation in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as Jesus suffered unjustly, in the same way that we submit to unjust governments, as he's just covered that, in the same way that uh, servants, or we might say employees, have an unjust employer. You submit to him when he is unjust. In the same way, your wives be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. So if anything, you want to do everything you can to win your husband. Number one, listen to the sermon on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Listen to that message. Go to my wife's website, and it's uh, Mothering from the Heart, and she has a series called Following Fallen Men. I think that would be really helpful to you. Um, you can't change your, change your husband, but there's one person for sure you can change. That's yourself. So I would say if you're in physical danger or the kids are in physical danger, or if he's sleeping around with multiple women and you're afraid of bringing disease into your body, then there might be at that point a time to draw a line in the sand and to say, husband, I'm not going to divorce you because God hates divorce but I'm going to separate from you. So when Paul says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Where does Jesus teach that? By what he says about divorce and remarriage. And so if you do leave, you either remain single the rest of your life or you're reconciled back to your husband. There are times when people come in and unfortunately the entry level for more and more people into the church today is a disaster in the home. And so I will give them a planned separation. They are so close to their problems, they cannot make any progress. And they'll have a planned separation. If anyone should be inconvenienced, it should not be the wife and children, but the man. Even if he has to sleep out in someone's backyard in a tent. 
uh, let him be inconvenienced. And then during that time of planned separation, you get counsel, and then eventually you transition back towards moving together, maybe one night a week, two days a week, three days a week. And, and I've seen, by God's grace, many a marriage saved with this approach. But uh, give it some strong thought here. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, I think we've got time for one more. Uh, this is a follow-up question uh, from Allie, who we answered earlier on the program. Uh, she says, does Dr. Brogy, Dr. Brogy know about the Bible Study Fellowship or does he know about the Community Bible Study Program? Yeah, so I'm familiar with both of them, and they're only as strong as their local expression. They're only as strong as their local expression. So there would be some Bible Study Fellowships, though there are national policies and guidelines, the same with Community Bible Study, that I would say, you don't need to go there. Look, I've seen unbelievers teaching. I've seen Roman Catholics who have been converted teaching at these, in these venues. That should never happen. Listen, the Roman Catholic Church rejects the gospel. They definitively reject the gospel. And uh, they're teaching some things that are leading people to hell. Um, there's all kinds of heresy. They deny, among other things, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, based on scripture alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the five solas of the Reformation. Yet in some of these organizations, you'll have a Roman Catholic teaching. Um, As far as I know, that's not allowed in their policy, but it happens. So it's only as good as the local expression. And then you have some people who will attend that, you know, end up inviting young, naive people to their liberal apostate church that say is gay affirming. Again, that shouldn't happen. So it's only as strong as the local leadership and the protective umbrella that they are offering. But ideally, you know, the local assembly should be teaching the word of God. Ideally, uh, there shouldn't really even be a need for some of these organizations. Um, they, they, they may meet a need in terms of evangelistic outreach, and I'm grateful for that. If you know me, I want to win people to Jesus. But this should not be the place first and primarily where believers are fed. It should be the local assembly. Anyway, there's a lot more, and again, I don't want to be unfair to either of these organizations, but again, they're only as strong as the local expression, so you need to be discerning. These are great questions. I wish we could answer more today. Several have come in, but... God willing, there'll always be another Bible line where we can dialogue together over the Word of God. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 